Welcome to Level Up Academy podcast, where we explore the diverse set of skills that can be applied across various industries and professions. Each episode will deep dive into the world of transferable skills, discussing topics like communication, problem solving, critical thinking, and more. Join us as we speak with experts in different fields and share stories of individuals who have successfully transferred their skills from one industry to another. Whether you're a recent grad, a mid-career professional, or someone looking to make a career change, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and let's discover how you can leverage your existing skills to excel in any industry. Welcome to Level Up Academy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Leland, a serial educator, an opportunities designer, and a compassionate leader. Hello, Level Up Academy listeners. Today, I am joined by both amazing educators out there. I'm sure there's plenty, but today it is within my community. I love these ladies. I love that we talk about something that we need to talk about in terms of education, in terms of our K-12, because I can't believe the passion that we just discuss about how we're going to help our future presidents, our future politicians, our future judges, our future business owners. These children are going to be. Um, the stats was so staggering, but these two ladies and I were talking about it, my fellow educators, about some of these percentages, and it seems low. Um, so keep in mind that this might be not 100% accurate, right? But the 2022 state of teaching statistics was very scary. Like they literally said how teaching has changed during the 2021-2022 school year. They forgot that 2019 and 2021 was kind of in that situation too. And then 2022 was slowly dissipating, right? But 81% of everything from students to teachers, our workload has increased, right? Spending more time addressing students' mental health. I'm hoping that I will be joined by another mental health specialist as well sometime in April, but spending more of their own money on the classroom materials. Like not only our teachers are underpaid, overworked, but now we have to spend our own money too in the classroom. Like think about that for a moment. As a parent, what can you do to help your local teachers, right? Increase in classroom interruptions during instruction, getting students back on track from learning loss. Literally, they lost a lot of learning. And I haven't taught K to 12 in a while. I do volunteer sometimes doing origami to, to kindergarten to relax kids. I like origami. It relaxes me too, okay, when I have anxiety. But I haven't taught K to 12 in a while. I've been doing higher ed fully. So these ladies are going to tell us today, like how overworked is overworked, right? And of course, change in their curriculum, because now we're trying to, all that loss that we have done during COVID, now we're trying to speed up these kids, right? And already they don't even want to do it. They're not motivated. Why would they? And then now receive a smaller budget for school supplies. What do you mean? In California, we were told we had millions of dollars. People and kids are having iPads. So where is the money? Like, Hello, follow the money, right? Where is the money going? Teachers are paying on their own pocket. We're not getting paid. And now the students are not even interested in going back to school, right? So now they have to change the curriculum. Now there's a lot of learning loss happening. There's social emotional learning. There's student mental health needs. We don't even want to talk about the kids that actually need um, special education, 
right? Kids that have ADHD, kids that have learning disability, right? With 30, 45 kids per classroom. And if you only teach one class and most teachers teach two, three classes, right? Plus all those kids that have learning loss. Like, do you see the problem now? There's so many going on. I'm going to stop talking now because you're going to start getting depressed in this conversation. We might get you depressed a little bit and maybe worried, angry. That's what we want, right? But at the same time, we're going to provide solutions on what you can do as a parent, okay? I'm not even keeping up with the comments. Wow, 37 comments in there already. <laughs> I'm just going to bring up um here. All of both of my ladies are here. Introduce Hello. yourself. Hello. Okay, okay, my name is Christine Jones. And I'm Kristen Norai. Um, just give you a little, do you want us to go jump in or? You just... Yeah, go for it. Just tell me a little bit about how you started being a teacher, where you're at today, what you do. Sure. Um, so I have a, over 20 years experience. I started out in special education in the Washington, D.C. Uh, metropolitan area in um, Montgomery County, Maryland. It was a very litigious community. And after a while, I decided I really wanted to teach kids. So I went back to school and got my general education um, degree from Johns Hopkins so that I could become a classroom teacher. And that allowed me to not just work with kids with special needs, but get to be with them all day, every day, instead of having to be pulled for meetings and attending different you know, types of things that because of the litigious side of special education, you know, I just was trying to get away from that. But I ended up relocating um, to the Charlotte, North Carolina area in 2008 and worked as a general ed teacher there for a while, discovered things were very different um, from you know where I had come from. I took a humongous salary cut when I, when I made the life change to move um, and took on more responsibilities that it never occurred to me to even ask, you know, like having lunch and recess duty, things like that. But uh, from there, my former principal actually from Chevy Chase, Maryland, had relocated to Rock Hill, South Carolina, and was serving as an assistant superintendent of the schools. And he contacted me and said, our special education department really needs some, some help. Can you, you know, would you consider coming down here? And it was about a 30-mile commute for me. But I went ahead and, and made that jump back into special education worked at the district level doing a lot of training and coaching for teachers, specifically on how to include kids with disabilities in their classroom. But then it led me into kind of my niche of behavior and social emotional health, actually. Um, you were talking about the importance of that and mental health. And I became aware um, when I was at the district level, I was doing compliance for 504 uh, plans for kids. There's so many children that have um, diagnoses of behavioral disabilities that, you know, it became just kind of very fascinating to me of what, you know, what's going on that we're not doing to help kids. And the root of it really is social emotional learning and, and putting as much into that as we possibly can. So with that said, you know, life changes ended up throwing a curveball and my partner and I relocated to the Wilmington, North Carolina area. And since I left, um, South Carolina and came back to North Carolina, I ended up back in the classroom and I was a self-contained behavior teacher for kids with disabilities in a school that was an alternate setting school for all of the kids that had been long-term suspended throughout the year. And from that, you know, I saw things I never thought I would see, you know, and learned even more about how much 
social emotional learning plays such a role in building that rapport and that that relationship with students. So I ended up becoming a behavior specialist. And then ironically, after the pandemic, uh, like you were saying, follow the money, Title I funding changed in my district um, where I was you know, last located and my position was cut. Um, so I made the decision of this is a sign for me to go ahead and figure out how to take my my wants and needs to help others global instead of just being in a school setting. So, you know, I kind of took a leap of faith and resigned um, and began doing some contract work. So I'm working currently um, part-time as, uh, I would say, a a Medicaid specialist for um, a behavioral health company that's out of Oregon called Brigacare. And they are starting up here in the Carolinas. So I'm helping them with that process. And then um, I'm also working part-time as a national um, professional development specialist for catapult learning, going around the country, training um, teachers, coaching teachers on all of the things we were talking about, you know, working with kids that have diverse learning, getting into Webb's depth of knowledge, questioning kids learning how to differentiate and do collaborative small group engagement so that students are truly getting it. And then also how to build that relationship with a student to get the student to even buy into learning from you. So that's kind of where I am now. I'm doing some other small projects for an SEL company, um, you know, that's looking at writing some learning objectives. And I'm looking at it from a trauma-informed lens and a special education lens to just make sure that it's all-inclusive. She wants to make sure, you know, as this rolls out, that it's consistent and inclusive um, across all settings. So I've been working on that as well. I'm like, this is me dancing. I love it because, (laughs) yeah, no, it's not that. It's like, I see your passion and I see your heart for helping these children because they need some support. But also you're not just helping the children. Once we help the children, we're helping the parents. We're helping the community. And I see it full circle. So I was like, what, what? I'm dancing (laughs) without the music. Oh, oh no. How about you, Christine? Kristen and I have been um, talking for some time. So we realized that a lot of our interests and our backgrounds are somewhat similar in the fact that we both started with the special education end of things. So I started teaching about 30 years ago. This is my 30th year of teaching. When I finish, it will be 30 years. So I started off in the parochial school system and I was doing preschool. And then I was an after school teacher and I was the director of it. And I had three other people that were um, also helpers. And then we had about 60 children that were enrolled, about 35 students that were coming every single day. And then after that, I ended up taking a job in the public school system for the special needs abilities preschool program. So I was a community school preschool specialist and I would go into um, different preschool sites and I would teach and also work with them and give them strategies because I was only in there um, once a week for one hour sometimes. And then I was also helping wraparound services with um, occupational therapists, physical therapists, and getting everything together, holding the IEP conferences. So um, while I was doing that, I also got my master's in special education. And I have mild and mentally and severe 
And also I have an endorsement for um, emotionally handicapped students, which is helping me tremendously now with the pandemic and um, our students' needs are changing every single year. So not only is the curriculum changing, but our students' needs are changing and it's getting harder. So that background has come very much in handy. And then after that, I went to teach kindergarten full-time when my children were school age. So then I went back to working full-time and I was teaching for a little while and I felt very comfortable. And then I had a yearning that I wanted to do more to help out my school. So then I became um, a teacher leader through my grade level. And then I also served on some committees for textbook adoptions. And I'm now I'm on the teacher leadership team. I coach other teachers. And then I also developed the science, hands-on science curriculum for our district with four other teachers. So that was developed together. And we looked at the scope and sequence of all of our standards. And then we made sure that it was going to hit um, what we needed to do as far as the testing to make sure that everything was looking like it flowed very nicely. So those kits were rolled out. Um, and then I became the teacher of the year for my building. And then I was nominated in the top 10 for the district at that time. And then I still wanted to do more because once you reach that year, like I still want to do more. I knew I didn't want to become a principal. Um, but I still wanted to help in a larger community. So now I'm looking globally um, how I want to impact. So I did a, um, a program. It was called Creating Harmony in a Classroom for Paraprofessionals. And I ended up getting very good reviews on that. People were saying this is going to help so many people. And then I went on LinkedIn and I saw all of the blue banners. Everybody was, a lot of people were leaving education. And I decided that at that point, I really need to give back to education and to help other teachers because I've been successful for 30 years to pay it back to other teachers. So I'm currently writing a book called Creating Harmony in Classroom. I have shared my PD worldwide. I've sent it to different people in different countries and they all said the same thing. It's, it's very helpful. I've sent it to parents this is going to be helpful. It's going to help a lot of people. So uh, I'm excited to get the book finished and then be able to release it to help out a lot of people. What, what? <laughs> Another rock star, like seriously, folks, like in our community, I love it. Like I am so in love with all of you because like my heart is full. Okay, here's I'm not going to cry. I'm so emotional. It's not even funny. I need to stop doing that. I need to like, if someone out there is listening, like I need to have more emotional control of myself. I've been working at it though for God knows 40 something years now on my composition. Cause when I'm mad, you'll see it on my face. When I'm happy, you'll see it. And then when I'm happy and like excited, I cry. So I don't know what's happening with that. I'm just so emotional, but Thank you so much for doing all that you do and helping. And now you're going big. That's what I say. Go big or go home, right? That's how I do it. Because if we don't try, no one will. So you might as well. And the fact that you're supporting other teachers, amazing. So this is my question to you guys is, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing K-12 education today? 
Do you want to go first, Christine, or would you want, sure. want me to no. take it? So we had, we've been discussing this amongst ourselves too. I would say definitely the social emotional area that is the biggest concern because that is their foundation. And without a strong social emotional learning being able to take place, then our students are going to flounder. And then if you start to take a look at the social emotional and you treat it as something that's done in isolation, then you're not going to have time for it. So if you treat it like it is the most important thing in your curriculum, then what you're going to have is you're going to have success because then you can weave it all the way through all of your curriculum and, and have higher level critical thinking skills put into place. So it is thinking differently and working smarter and not harder. Did you have something to add to that, Kristen? I was going to say absolutely. And, and having a growth mindset, like Christine and I talk about all the time that, you know, it's always okay to say, Hey, I can do this better, or I can do this differently. How can I be learning fr from what I'm doing to make it so that it's not even more work, you know, on, on teacher's plates. Cause that's one of the things that I see, see and saw as a support specialist, how frustrated classroom teachers were with the amount that was on their plate. And then on, in addition, the issues that kids are coming back to school with post pandemic or middle of pandemic, whatever you want to call it, are just beyond imagination. And so many more kids are affected um, and needing supports that, you know, we're not, the schools aren't staffed for that. And then also we have to get our students caught up because we all know that there's been learning loss. So how do you go about doing that? You go about doing that by providing small group interventions and really taking a look at your data. So Chris and I both come from a special ed background and, I'm, and that background is heavy in data collection. That, since I have that background, I am also heavy into the data collection as a teacher. And I collect data daily and that I use that to drive my instruction to make sure that I am hitting those, the areas that my students need at the right exact time. And so if they've mastered something, they are no longer in that group. They're, they're gone. Like that day they're out. So we can get them moving on to the next thing. I like Absolutely. that. You got to have flat, flexible grouping on mm -hmm. everything. Yes. I like that. Now, my question is, do the schools, is this something that your school allows? Because I know some schools are very strict. Like, you can't just group these kids. Whatever you're given, that's all your kids are. And it doesn't matter if this kid is this level, this level, or this level, you have this one curriculum. Like, what if other schools don't allow that flexibility? What would you recommend for other teachers to do? So within the curriculum, you have, it's called tier one. And when you talk about tier one instruction, that is whole group learning. So that is what is mandated by the school corporation. And then what you can do is during your center time, we have daily five, you can pull back and do your, um, your individualized learning at that time. Do you have any suggestions, Kristen? Same thing. I was going to say when I was, I'm thinking back to a specific class that I had one year where it was exactly that. 
I had 21 students in my class and I had everything from a student who had just moved into the country who had four words of English to a student at third third grade developmentally age you know wise reading at an 11th grade level and I had them in the same classroom and I'm expected to teach them you know the same curriculum so differentiation became the key and um really looking at learning my students learning styles as you know quickly as I could to figure out you know how they would best you know benefit from learning but also working in those small groups you know giving them activities to do independently at their ability level so that I could then pull and work with them on their actual instructional level as opposed to on the curriculum that everybody was getting at tier one um you know and it takes a lot of of ability to do that. And I, you know, I do not think if I hadn't had the special education background as a classroom teacher, I wouldn't have known how to do that without somebody teaching me. So that's one of the things too, that I, you know, I see a lot of gaps between, you know, what special education teachers are trained with and then general education teachers. And there's, there needs to be more merging because we're, you know, expected to be building these inclusive environments and having kids stay in the general education setting, but yet we're not training and we're not putting staff in. And then if we do put staff in, you know, like, you know, something that happened with me at you know, my former school, the teachers are absent and we have a sub shortage and a teacher shortage. So, you know, I would show up to school and find out, oh, you're not you're not doing your job today. You're teaching sixth grade social studies because the, the teacher's out. And that was happening two, three, four times a week. So I wasn't able to do my job as a behavior specialist and a social emotional learning coordinator. And at the same time, I mean, the kids started referring to me as their favorite sub in the building because I was constantly in classrooms covering for teachers that were out. And a lot of it was, you know, legitimate being out because of COVID or whatever it might have been. But, you know, it was a lot, you know, to just show up and find out, oh, today you're teaching eighth grade science. And then the next day it might be sixth grade social studies again. It's just, it was, it was a lot. And But you were know. flexible and that's the thing. And Nicole's been saying here too, just like this should be done across the board to build that empathy in all kids. But that is the problem is that it's not. And it's like an individual effort to actually want to help more. And some teachers, I've I also interviewed a teacher where she's like, well, I'm a brand new teacher. Like she's from Canada. Yeah. She's like, I'm a brand new teacher. And they give you a curriculum and you're supposed to teach it. But like, we didn't learn that in college on like how to right. be flexible and yeah. how to be this and how to be, you mm -hmm. know, and I was like, okay, so that means then that we need a teacher support to support other teachers on how to actually teach to be in this inclusive classroom, right? And cross-functional is what we need to do, which is great. Mm -hmm. Mary has a question. How do you use chat GPT in the use curriculum post-pandemic? I am not using it because I'm not in a school right now. So it's not something I actually have jumped into yet. So I can't speak to that one. Now I can speak to this one. So I've been kind of playing around with it on my end just to see generating ideas and to see how, how close it is to what I've been teaching. And you can come up with some great higher level, level critical thinking skills. You can, it, so we talk about how to work smarter, not harder. This actually enables you to do it. So if you need to pull up a field trip form, let's say, 
you can actually enter it in to chat GPT and then it will generate a letter for you. So I am a mentor and I went to my mentee and gave her the gift of the chat GPT. And she was like, no way, this is so neat. And I was, because our time is so limited. So, and she was like, kind of like felt like it was cheating. I said, other people are using this. It is a tool that is, is useful. So we just have to figure out how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just a matter of that. So I've been asked this in higher ed and I haven't used it because we have a set curriculum. So it's not like I can use any of that. Um, what I have done though, is I have made sure that my students know like, yeah, I'm watching, you know, certain questions. And I see that if they use chat GBT, I can actually see because in the classroom, the way they talk is different mm -hmm. than the way they write. And mm -hmm. so what I do is I actually have a 50 because my class is two and a half hours okay and i'm gonna tell you i am not lecturing you for two and a half hours my throat already hurts a, a half an hour so it's not happening so i would put them on groups for 30 minutes and then i have them write right there one of the questions on their homework like right now and then present it to class and see and i can see the feeling and then my feedback would be like aha i got you no my feedback would be like oh you're really a good writer last last um the last assignment that you submitted in class oh, yeah that was really good next time how about this and how about that and they know that i know because they're adults okay yeah. that i know right and the next right. assignment literally reflect on the class instead of chat gpt i can see so but there's no turn it in on chat gpt there's no way right you yeah. can't do turn it in anymore you can't do all those you know thing plagiarism checker is still going but people who uses chat gpt you can't so there's always just my critical thinking outside the box is like aha let's do it in class and see what you say and then when i see the difference i was like aha you know like i know like you know uh but that's the only way i couldn't really do anything else right how have you sewn it used from other people instead well i've seen it a lot on other people for sure um but also it's very sophisticated but it's not super accurate i've seen even the referencing that they use is not also sophisticated um i've seen it as well but my next question to you guys is this what strategies do you use to personalize learning for students with different learning styles and disabilities. You kind of just talked about it a little bit from a teacher's perspective, but if you were a mom, right? And you don't know if your child has a learning disability, how could you approach your teacher to kind of help them? That's a great question. So, okay, so I've been in this situation before as a parent. So, what I did is I noticed that there was learning issues and I brought it to the attention of the teacher and mentioned what I was noticing and to see if they were noticing the same thing. So then that way we could be on the same page and see how we could help um, you know, my child. So from there, I pushed for special ed special education services essentially is what I ended up doing as a parent. How about you? I'm, I'm going to actually speak from the standpoint of um, as a consultant, I actually had a, a family member recently that they were trying to figure out if there was a learning disability or not. 
And um, because of my background, a um, family member approached me and asked me to read the material and take a look at it to, to see what I thought, because, you know, his immediate takeaway based on the way the school had presented it to him was, oh, she's not, she doesn't need any services. She's fine. And then I read the, the testing and I said, wait a minute, you know, first of all, there is a huge discrepancy in, in her achievement numbers in, in gaps in, in different parts of, of reading and math and writing. But in addition to that, all the mitigating factors that were in place needed to be, you know, considered, you know, her, we, she's been tutored now for over a year, 90 minute blocks, three times a week. You know, she's worked with three different people. And one of the things that, that we've done with that is all three people teach very differently. So that was one of the ways that we've kind of tried to differentiate for her. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting how schools are very quick to say, oh, no, no, no there's no problem if they don't think there's going to be any pushback from the parent. And I would love to have more voice for the parents that don't know how to push back because sometimes parents go, Oh, okay. And they just take it for what it is. And then three years later, the kid is failing and, and it's, why didn't we test this child sooner? Why didn't we do something sooner? And those so are the, people, the, the schools and the people that I worry about. And that's interesting too, because what I did as a parent, is I collected data because that's what I do. I collect data. So I was noticing certain things and then you could see patterns. And I turned that data in as a parent to show that this is what I was noticing and this is what I think is going on. And can we look into this further? So you have to advocate for your child um, at all times. And if you don't get the right answer or you're looking for a different answer, I suggest keep on trying. And if you if they're not making the progress, just because they said no, doesn't mean it's no forever. Now I'm talking about that from a parent point of view. Yeah, and I've also noticed it where if it's even harder, right? It's already hard for us, but it's even harder when you are a non-English speaking family it's even harder. We have a lot in California. And so when their kids get in trouble because of a learning disability or anything, and, and instead of fighting for their kids, they can't speak the language. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you deal with those families if you see those in your classroom? I, I, we, have an we have an interpreter that we can go ahead and run that through. So then that way they can talk to the parents and they can be there for the kids for case conferences, for annual reviews, or for parent-teacher conferences. That's I was awesome. going to say the same thing. You know, staff members that happen to speak the language, a lot of times that can help as well. Google Translate has become something now that kids have learned how to come over and, you know, say what they need to say into Google and it spits it out for you. And that has been a game changer in, in building relationships with those kids. And I think it's probably increased their, their learning of English in terms of, you know, being even further immersed into, uh, you know, learning and, and getting that experience. Yeah. My next question is, how do you build positive relationships with your students and their families? Especially right now, going back to school and it's like COVID, post-COVID. Right. So one of the things that, um, you know, I always try to do is figure out a way to start everything out positive. 
with the beginning of the year. You know, there, since COVID, there's been a lot of shift in the data and I've seen stats, everything from you need three positives to every one negative. And then I just recently saw another report that said post pandemic, people need more like five positives for every one negative. That's really hard to do when you have kids that are returning with behavior problems, you know, especially as severe as they've been. So getting to know those those people and those parents as quickly as possible, um, doing learning surveys, you know, getting time with your students to, to really build those relationships, because if you have the relationship, there's more respect given overall um, and they're more apt to, to buy into working with you. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is is getting a student and a parent to know that you're on their side and you're not going to stop fighting for what their needs are because they're a lot of them are so used to not having somebody stand up for them and you know have just been kind of pushed to the wayside for so many years and so whatever it takes you know if, if i need to bring the paperwork to your to your work so that you can get what you need done you know i'll support a parent however i need to you know without any judgment same for a student and teaching kids how to advocate for themselves is another big piece of that. So that helps those positive relationships just up kind of naturally grow. So what I, what I've done in my classroom, and I've been doing this for a very long time. My parents are my partners. So we work together collaboratively. So when I make that phone call for the very first time, let's say it's about a behavior, I tell them that we are going to be working together to solve this problem, that we both have the same goal, which is for their child to be successful. And how are we going to go about creating that success? Well, we create that success by both of us doing the same thing from home to school, using the same verbiage, making sure that we are consistent. So if I bring a concern to a parent, it is to solve the problem. It's not to attack their parenting skills and tell them that they are not doing their job. We don't, I never do that. So what I've also done because I have good relationships with my parents, I have been able to have them set up a calming area at their house. They've bought different calming containers. They've done different things to help their child with homework that would be like out of the box types of thinking because they weren't doing their, their homework. So those are just some of the examples. I've also had parents come into the classroom and with their child so we could teach them separately what it looks like to be a student within the classroom setting. So we go through the whole day and then that way the parents can then reinforce it with them. Now that was really before COVID because now it's, you know, everything's a lot more strict with the COVID regulations, but that was before COVID. I really like that. I actually did that with my kids and my kids are like, mom, don't sit next to me. Just go in that corner over there for their mom. Like, that's what I was told. And then she was only like sixth grade. I was like, oh, I cannot believe you. Sixth and then, grade is, is when it starts. They don't want I anything know. to do with parents at that age. And that's and then, my right, favorite age. I love, oh my gosh. I love those then, middle school kids. And it's crazy. And then like in high school and freshman, they don't want me to go out now of the car. They just want me to like drop them off in the back. And then one time I went out because I needed to go to the bathroom at one of the security guard, they have a security guard, um, didn't didn't stop me because they I guess I look like a student. I came out of the bathroom and one of the one of the boys actually started like smiling and like 
asking me out. And they're like, gross, that's my mother. And then she's like, you're not allowed to come to my school anymore. I was like, ew, no. Because they're in high school now. I was like, oh, my gosh. I get, I'm like, dude, I was just wearing a skirt. What is wrong with your people in the school? Um, but, yeah, so, she, so I'm not allowed to go to their campus. Uh, if I drive, I have to go drive through. And if I drop off, I have to go in the back. Like, that's the rule now. <sighs> anyway, it's just hilarious what they're doing now. But, yeah. Uh, my next question is, how do you incorporate technology into your teaching? And what are some of your favorite ed tech tools? So, so go ahead. <laughs> so what, I, what I've done is I'm going to go ahead and tell you how I personalized some of the technologies. So what I created were some Google Slides. So that is honestly my go-to because it provided a framework when my children were at home. And I was able to load up everything from the morning message to their music and movement to also just their social emotional needs, deep breathing and, and that kind of thing. And then we had the, the math parts too, and it was all set up. So now what I can do is when we have those e-learning days, I can slide that as a slide deck. And the children are already familiar with it and how to utilize it. And then I can assign how to directions along with, with that. I also used it for small group instruction. And we were able to do differentiated groups with our slide decks. Then I took it one step further and third quarter, I was taking a look at their gaps with their standards and I created individual learning targets for them. And then when they mastered it, it came off of their slide deck. Wow. How about you, Christine? I was going to say, I, I, since I, in the last five years have been more in a support specialist role when I think about how I've used technology, I'm using a lot of different apps that are available for coping strategies, teaching kids how to deal with anxiety or stress or anger management, whatever it might be. Um, but also to do, you know, pulling up on YouTube a breathing video, you know, and taking the time to teach them those strategies has made it a whole lot more visual and, and right there in instant, you know, in the sense of, you know, I can easily and quickly show a parent, hey, go to this link and they can help them from home with that same thing. But, um, you know, everything is technology based. So one of the things I try to do is when I'm meeting with students, especially if it's a, you know, one on one, you know, more intensive needs service is there's no technology involved in that. You know, we're going to talk and we're going to walk through things. I really believe in getting kids moving, you know, a lot of times, especially middle school, they don't want to talk about serious things. But if you put a boy, a seventh grade boy next to you and have him walk with you, it's amazing how quickly he'll start talking about things. And maybe all of a sudden, you know, it's just kind of a floodgate. And it's, I can't believe how many kids I got over the years who went from, I'm not telling you anything to, and then this happened when I was two and they've got their whole story laid out for me, you know, and I truly believe that the walking is a big component of that because there is so much um, data out there to support that the more you walk, the more active your brain is and the more 
positivity your brain has with it. You know, you're not sitting sedative. And I think that that has a huge impact, but also just taking the weight off of, they didn't have to look at me. They didn't have to see me looking at them. It was just kind of there. And, and I love using those kinds of strategies. So as much as I love technology, I try to also get them to remember life without it too. Yeah, that is actually cool. Um, when I teach, I taught K to 12 for uh, Chinese students in China. They have very strict rules. They have very strict curriculum. Okay. I teach at three in the morning, literally my time. I, I tried 24 hours schedule. I don't know. I was crazy. And I would be like, three in the morning my husband's sleeping over here my kids good thing my house is a little bit bigger they can't hear me but i'm loud okay i'm short small but loud so and um i don't know if you guys have heard of uh, tpr teaching total physical response mm -mm. Have you? so when i total physical response meaning like we do hands we like if we say something we point at our mouth we point at our ears like like mickey mouse almost but like you really are like in the, on the screen like i'm listening can you see me like literally that's tpr right and the kids literally do that and i was like i wonder why the us doesn't allow tpr um because literally your your kids learn more like imagine if your kids hear uh fourth grade fifth grade that don't know how to speak english and they're learning like hands or ears like instead of saying hands ears like literally you say hands ears like literally physical right mm -hmm. and that's what they did and these kids i've seen them learn only once a week they're with me like for 30 minutes and i see them learning a month like really fast which is amazing um so i wonder if why we don't do total physical response so, but that would be a good one at the kindergarten level i use my hands all the time because my husband says i talk with my hands all the time so i'm like it is so big or you got to use your listening ears you know and all of those things because it helps with their vocabulary. I teach at an inner city school and our vocabulary is, is limited. So I also use the hand gestures to help them understand what I am conveying. So if it's tiny, if it's real minuscule, it'll be, you know, real tiny or, you know, when I even describe voices, what kind of voice should they be having right now? and it's very big motions and then like you're talking like this it should be like, like yeah that, like that or sometimes yeah. i go like when i go like this it means it's too loud yeah. so my students know i don't even have to say anything i go like this and then they're they lower their voices so that is so cool that way you don't you know and it so i think it does help it's needed and it I've does coming into my classroom that did not know any English, English and then yeah. I'm also got on the honor roll. So it can be done. You have to work and work and work, but it can be done and it takes diligence and it takes patience and it takes purposeful, honestly, purposeful movements and practice, like practice. Cause I know I came in this country. I didn't know how to speak English. And my mom, my parents actually, uh, it used to be called E uh, ELD, English Language Development, before it became ESL. And um, you're supposed to take three years of ELD and then you can go college prep and senior year if English is not your first language. I came to summer school and I took ELD one, two, and three in three months. And they're like, it's not possible. There's no way. We've never had it done. And they're like, well, you guys tested her. So I went to a college prep class and literally 
I got pulled out in the middle of class and I cried. It was so embarrassing because the academic advisor at that time saying she's not supposed to be in this class. Like she has to go back to ELD one. And the teacher's like, you guys put her here. And I started crying and I called my mom and, and my mom threatened a lawyer on them. <laughs> she basically said, you people put her in dark class. You people tested her for three months. I don't know what the problem is. So put her back in her class. If she fails in like in the, I guess they call it like three months, then you can go back. And um, I was fine. In fact, I did public speaking two months after that. I couldn't oh, speak wow. English, but I was like, yeah, okay, let's go. And I won. I was like, hey, I can speak English now. Like, and then I went to a, a restaurant. I didn't know the difference between dessert and desert, okay? So imagine me saying, hey, can I have like the New York something? I think it's a desert. <laughs> the lady's like, and my dad started laughing sure? at my mom. And she's like, that's not how, well, no, I learned that in school. She's like, no, honey, we don't have a stand here. And all. I'm like, no, you know, the, the thing, the thing, the circle, the thing. And she, it's a desert. <laughs> the lady's like, you mean dessert? I'm like, yeah, whatever. That thing that tastes good. You know, like I had an attitude, but I didn't know what I was saying. I just did it anyway. But it really makes a difference when your parents are for you. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, man, that was the, sure. the thing. I have a next question is this one. Can you share some examples of successful projects or initiative you've implemented in your classroom or school, especially right now when we just came back from COVID? So Christine and I were talking about this just in general the other day, you know, that one of the things I think that, you know, has been huge and it's become even bigger since the pandemic is um, using class meetings and restorative um, justice practices with students where, you know, you're actually teaching them how to work through a problem versus just punishing them. You know, every every behavior is a form of communication in one way or another. And, you know, if we have two students that get in a fight, typically and traditionally, you know, in the school setting, they get suspended and they get sent home and then they come back to school still angry at each other and fight again. So instead of having that happen, trying to solve those problems proactively, I would do weekly class meetings with my students and um, we problem solved. They would, you know, anonymously drop things into our class meeting you know, jar or they would let me know privately, you know, we need to talk about something. We solved a lot of bullying issues, a lot of, um, you know, just things that were being misinterpreted, you know, lots of clicky type stuff, especially when I was teaching fourth, fifth and sixth grade and they're getting into that, you know, he said, she said, and all the interest in, in the other opposite sex starts. But um, yeah, I think classroom meetings and teaching kids how to talk through a problem, there's nothing more powerful than hearing, you know, students problem solve. So that's something I've always done, you know, class meetings, but that's become even more important. Yeah, I think as, as the pandemic has shown. One of the other things too, that a class meeting and restorative justice does is it takes the I away and it brings back to the we. So it is a collaborative approach. What I've noticed in my classroom is whenever we go to the I, the I is, is a killjoy because as soon and then they're like, I, I feel this way, I'm angry, I'm upset. And as soon as we take that problem, we elevate that problem up here and we still can treat each other respectively and it's the problem that we're trying to figure out. So in my classroom, we attack a problem. We say we are problem solvers. 
how do we solve this problem? It empowers our students to be the change. So when they come to me with so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that, they know that I'm going to say, we are problem solvers. How do we solve this problem? So we gather around and this would be like a restorative justice, kind mm -hmm. of like a little mini circle. And we ask, I take a few deep breaths and then I do a check-in. Does How is everybody doing? Thumbs up, thumbs sideways or thumbs down for more time. And then, you know, they'll give me like a thumb sideways or a thumbs down. I said, how much, how many more deep breaths do you need? They'll show me four. They don't talk. And they'll show me four. As a collective group, we do four more deep breaths. And then I do another check-in. How is everybody? Are we ready to talk? And then they'll give me a thumbs up. At that point, when I get a thumbs up from everybody, then we can talk. And then I always mention first that we are problem solvers. How do we solve this problem? What you see when you do that is a release of all of that pent-up anger, the frustration, mm -hmm. it's gone. And then we talk about it. And then what we do is we do a pile on with our hands and we put them all up on top of each other. And then we go, and then we give each other a group hug. And if they need to say sorries or whatever, that's when it's done. And then we go back to our regular classroom activities. And I have to piggyback, Christine's talking about working with five-year-olds. This works exactly the same with middle school kids. You know, I think the biggest thing is with the restorative circle, you literally sit in a circle so that no one is in front of another person. Everybody's on equal ground. And if you teach the kids the process, it gets to the point that, you know, kids will say, I think we need to cir circle up and solve this problem. And I, I love it, you know, or you know, they know if I'm coming in for my weekly lesson with them that, you know, on Thursdays, I'm going to say, okay, circle up as soon as I get there. So I can hear kids down the hall, you know, they're already getting the chairs and desks moved because they're circling <laughs> up knowing it's coming. <laughs> There's just nothing more powerful than kids taking that ownership of we got to figure this out. Yes. So it, you know, it works even at with upper grades and it works with staff. I've used it with students and staff before. I think we need that for sure with adults, especially business leaders, um, when they're getting headbutts on, I need this budget. No, I need this budget. No, I need no yes. we need a circle right now. Let's see who yes. gets the budget, right? Like, let's say, um, yes. last question. I mean, I love this conversation. Now, last question. What advice would you give to new or aspiring K-12 teachers, especially if they're just brand new? And what advice would you give to parents to ensure their kids are fully supported? I think being someone that's stepped away from education and public education, I can speak pretty freely on this one that something I did not do for myself was figure out a work-life balance. And my biggest piece of advice to new teachers would be don't forget the the, the life side of that work-life balance and, and have boundaries. It's okay to say no. You know, you don't have to be on every committee. You know, there's a lot of, of expectation with teachers that, you know, they'll just take one more thing on. And if you don't, you know, it's, it really becomes, oh, well, she doesn't help out around here. Well, you know, the more you take on, the more you're expected to take on. And, you know, I found myself in my late twenties, early thirties, single and on every committee for every subject, for everything under the sun, because I had volunteered to do so over time. And it's not sustainable, nor is it healthy. Um, you know, I think there needs to be that fine line where we, you know, stop and, and we 
say, hey, you know, we, we've got to go home for the day and have our own our own side. And that's something that, that teachers are not taught to do. So I that would, would also, be mine. I would also add that we need to allow grace for ourselves. And that we are going to be making mistakes and that that is okay. And how I got past that was I make a lot of mistakes. I call up all my mistakes to my children. So my children know that I make mistakes. And then that helped me understand that, that it was okay to do that. And it also gave permission for my students to make mistakes. Um, also do not expect perfection. That goes along with allowing, you know, giving yourself grace. I would also suggest working on one one thing, one thing only. And a lot of times what ends up being the killjoy is classroom management. Mm -hmm. So focusing in on the classroom management and getting a handle on the classroom management, you will not have it the very first year. Do not expect that you will have it the first year. That takes right. time. Talk to other people. Talk to experienced teachers and ask them what they are doing. Incorporate incorporate some of their strategies do check back ins, have them also have people come into their classroom and give them strategies on that. Videotaping is a wonderful way to do that as well, because if you have somebody videotaping you, then you can see where you're making those mistakes and then, and then you can fix it faster. That's awesome. I love that. I think for me as a parent, I don't do K to 12 anymore, but as a parent, definitely be there for your child always. Some, I've seen parents right now, even with my kids, is that they, if they get in trouble at school, they automatically assume that the kid is just a troublemaker and they mm -hmm. feel embarrassed so they don't stand out for their kids. I'm the opposite. My kids make mistakes, but they know if I have to be a fool in front of your teacher and the principal, you're going to get it if you lied. That you're, You better just hide in your bed for a month, right? That's, <laughs> I'm a strict parent. Like, I'm that parent. So when my kids speak up, they know that they're better to be telling the truth, right? Because they may, they can mm -hmm. make a mistake, but don't lie about other people and your teachers because I don't play that game. Like I pay a lot of money for their school. They don't go to public schools, but at the same time, I want to make sure that they grow up not being bullied or be a bully and that they can stand up for themselves on what's right and what's wrong. But if their teachers are also human, they're not superhuman. They have so many students. You're not the only student, okay? Because you're like, mom, they didn't grade my thing. I'm like, hello? <laughs> or how many, how many students are in your classroom? And so when their teachers actually tells me, thank you so much for raising your children to understand kids. And they always say, oh, my mom is a teacher. Like she tells us like she has 600 students. There's no way she could grade, you know, overnight. And so they're more like, I tell them like, it's hard, like yeah. 600 students sometimes. And then all of them, 10 pages paper. And that's conservative, right? And then right. you have to deal yeah. not only grading, but now your emotional issues. And then you're in the classroom because this is not some some of the K to 12 are not online. They're on ground. They're running around They're I was like, I cannot be a teacher in California because one of my um, friends, um, kids at uh, fourth grade, they throw dumbbells at her mm -hmm. during P.E. That was my I job. Will, I, I was the responding person and you know, on staff that would go to those crises in buildings and it's heartbreaking how much that's happening it's unfortunate that it's a norm um yeah you know, it, it would be no big deal for me to have a day where i'd have five different kids that you know exploded within a classroom and either destructed the room or tried to go after another person you know whether it be a kid or an adult 
Yeah, um, and they sell and then, drugs too in front of you, and the cops can't do anything because it's juvenile, right? It's right, like it's just right. delinquency. And I'm like, I can't. I will be ending up in the hospital or in jail. Like I can't. <laughs> Right. right. I was like, online is okay. I can mute you. Like, that's really what I'm going to do. I'm just going to mute you. What happened? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. It's not working right now. Anyway, let's move on to chapter five. Now we know your secret. <laughs> right. I'm like, huh? What? I'm sorry. TPR right here. What? I can't hear you. Right? Sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. But seriously, I do. And I'm like, guys, let's get into the lecture. And then you can ask me questions later. Because sometimes I swear I might have ADHD because once you ask me a question, I forgot, you know, and I'm like, right. okay, wait, hold on. Let me just talk. And then we can do the questions later. Oh my gosh, it's running out of time. Is there any last minute thing that you could tell your fellow teachers in terms of support? Maybe they can reach out to you and just ask for that support. Sure. I, my, my big thing would, it would say, get on LinkedIn, whether you are looking for another job or not. LinkedIn is not what it used to be. It is so much more. I, you know, I have found such a community and such a uh, group of like-minded people that it, and, and it's worldwide, which is amazing to uh-huh. me. I have people all over the country who've become some of my closest friends, you know, that I talk to daily in real life on the computer, but also, you know, on the phone or, you know, FaceTiming or whatever it might be. I've actually met several of my, my contacts in, in person. And, you know, I just, LinkedIn has given me so many opportunities. Um, You know, all three jobs I'm currently working are through networking on LinkedIn. You know, it's just a great community. So that would be my plug for LinkedIn. How about you, Christine? (laughs) I, I really enjoy LinkedIn. Um, Kristen's already given that plug. So what I would like to say is that educators, if you are feeling stressed and stressed out, then you need to reach out to other educators. They can reach out to myself or even Kristen. I don't want to speak for you, but I'm, you know, or other educators and start networking and trying to problem solve the area that they're having difficulty in with some people that are expertise in whatever area that they are looking for. And there's a plethora of help on LinkedIn for for you to be able to do that. Yeah, this is where I met your amazing rock stars right now. Like high five later. (laughs) (laughs) TPR, TPR. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Okay, first of all, Mike, hello. Uh Uh-huh, you showed up last minute. Now I'm banned from trivia night, apparently. I don't like you no more. I saw that. Oh, my gosh. Look at Nicole's like, "Mm mm-hmm, sure, you can try to bind her. Uh, I love this, ladies. Um, And Mike is here. Awesome. Keep rocking on. Know that you, um, what you do is priceless. Yes, you do. Thank you so much for being here today. I totally appreciate you. And LinkedIn family and Team Replay, we welcome your questions as well. We can always keep going on this uh, recording and then in LinkedIn, I will post it. It's also on YouTube and Facebook um, and you guys can actually still reply on this and I'll send you all the links as well. Thank you so much okay. for having uh, you Thank guys you. time today. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey through the Level Up Academy podcast. We hope that our episodes provided you with valuable insights, inspiration, and practical wisdom to fuel your personal and professional growth. 
Exciting news! Level Up Academy is creating a membership club for everyone to join. Watch for the big announcement soon where you can take classes online at your convenience to level up yourself. We also offer mentorship, coaching, and group master classes. We hope you can join us next time. For sponsorship and any questions, please email me at lua, L-U-A, at L-E-V-E-L-U-P-B-Y, D-O-C-L-E-Y-L-A-N-D.com. That is Lua at levelupbydocleland.com. Until next time.